Hello, Pastor Chris here. Welcome to Christianity 101. This is lesson four, uh, the salvation of God, and this includes man's fall and man's redemption. This is a critical foundational doctrine for us to understand as born-again believers. One of the critical foundational doctrines of Christianity is understanding the doctrine of original sin, understanding that man is not inherently good, that man has a sin nature, man must die, man will die, man is sinful, and man therefore needs a redeemer. Uh, the common New Age philosophy of modern society is that man is inherently good. This is part of Gnosticism, this is part of New Age doctrine, this is part of pop psychology. And so because those heresies are so prominent in our culture, in our education system, and in our, our communities, we have to reestablish or reaffirm or constantly reteach the doctrine, the foundational doctrine that man is a sinful creature, man needs a redeemer, and man can only be saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. One famous psychologist I've studied a lot was a man named Carl Rogers. Uh, he's been called the most influential psychologist you've never heard of. And his most famous thing he's ever presented or contributed, that's it, his most famous contribution to psychology and culture is his theory called unconditional positive regard. So we break that down for a second unconditional positive regard and what that theory said or that philosophy whatever you want to call it it said that man is inherently good man has goodness within him and man is capable of infinite good if man can always be unconditionally regarded in the positive sense that means without question, unconditionally, if you will treat man good and always assume the best of him, he will only do better. And so his theory also says, if man fails, it's because someone has been critical of them, judged them, or treated them less than positive. Therefore, man is not responsible for his own shortcomings. How other people treat him is the problem. You can see the problem with that line of reasoning. He is the one who coined and made very established or caused to be very established in our culture the expression, who are you to judge? He famously said, who are you to judge? That was 1958, 1960, something like that, 65. And now everybody says that, who are you to judge? Or I don't want to judge, but that's not biblical. We are to judge, not to damnation, but we judge right is right, wrong is wrong. If we can't judge, then we should retire every adjective and adverb because those are objectifying or descriptors that describe things. That's the definition of an adverb. It describes the verb. It modifies the verb or an adjective. It, it modifies or describes the noun. Anyway, all that aside, we have to reestablish the salvation of God and that man is not inherently good. Man has a sin nature and it is appointed unto man once to die. As Paul said, I was alive once, then the law came, sin revived, and I died. So let's look at this. Let's look, at, look into our curriculum here. God's perfect will is for man to have constant and continuous fellowship with him. That's what God wants. That's the original intent in the garden. God made man, and then he made man Adam and Eve, and they fellowshiped with each other, and they fellowshiped with God in the garden. That's what the Lord wants, fellowship. This has been his will from the beginning. God had fellowship with Adam in the garden. God didn't want Adam working alone. In the garden, keeping it, tending it, guarding it, 
naming the animals, caring for them. He wanted to be with Adam doing this work for God. Satan did not like to see God fellowshipping with his finest creation. I see this as a, a manifestation of jealousy. Satan having been cast out, Satan having been uh, rejected because of his rebellion and his unwillingness to maintain his first principality, as the book of Jude says, is cast out and cast to the earth. And so we can see perhaps a, a, an air of jealousy. What is this new thing God has made? Job is very clear. Job 38 says that God made the angels before he made the earth and before he made man. So now that he's made man, uh, it's almost like the jealous older brother, so to speak. Not that Satan's our brother. We're not Mormons. That's Mormon doctrine. Satan's not our brother. Satan's a creation created before us, rejected for sinfulness. But you can see the parallels that now there's this new creation that has a spirit being like, like the angels do. But now he has a temporal body and God is fellowshipping with Adam. And you can see Satan says, I don't like this. And I'm going to pull them down just like I pulled angels with me. So Satan deceived the woman and she gave the fruit unto her husband and he ate it, resulting in sin. Or we call that original sin. This act of disobedience caused them to die spiritually and lose fellowship with God. We understand this. This is the story of original sin. This is the story of how sin entered the earth and it brought about what we call the curse. Up until this point, nothing could die. Nothing would die. It was spoken into existence by the living word of God. It was maintained by the word of his power and it could not die. But once sin entered in, once rebellion through the finest creation of man entered in, the curse is triggered and now everything has to die. Even the Bible says in Romans, all of creation has been subject to this vanity now, not willingly, but it longs and groans for the redemption of the sons of God. This original sin has set in motion everything. The New Testament says that the first Adam brought in sin, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ, brought in salvation. So sin is rebellion against God's word. The word sin means to miss the mark. It's a pretty simple term. It means you're aiming at something, a mark, a target, bullseye, and then you miss it. Sometimes we purposely sin and we willfully aim the gun over here rather than at the bullseye. And that's foolish. Uh, if you know anything about gun safety or uh, projectile safety, even a bow and arrow or a slingshot, you have to always be mindful of what's behind your target or what's behind where you're aiming in case you miss. We, with our sin, we rarely think about what's behind the thing we're aiming at if we're not purposely aiming at God. So we miss the target in sin and we never consider the ramifications of if the bullet goes off over here. One time years ago, I was uh, shooting at squirrels in trees and I missed a squirrel. Now I foolishly was aiming up at a tree. Typically when you squirrel hunt, you're aiming up. And I was not hunting squirrels with shotguns like some do. I was hunting with a 22. And I missed the squirrel and I didn't hit the tree. I missed, he was sitting on a branch. I knew I missed him because when you shoot at a squirrel and you hit the tree, it spooks the squirrel and he runs. If you shoot at a squirrel and you miss him and hit nothing, he just sits there because all he hears is something whiz by him. The squirrel didn't move, which meant I totally missed the mark, which means my bullet is traveling at 1,000 feet per second at an angle of about, what is that, about 30, 40 degrees above the horizon, and nothing is behind it. And my heart sank and my stomach began to get sick because I'm responsible for that bullet.
I quickly had to get on Google Maps and see what was in that direction about a mile because that's where the bullet's going to come down. It's a very irresponsible story. I take no more responsibility for it than what I've just told you. Thankfully, there was nothing off in that direction but farmland, and thankfully it was a 22, so it's a very small bullet. But sin is missing the mark, and when you miss the mark, you're responsible for what happens behind the target. The mark we are to aim for is God's word. Sin is anything violating God's holy word. And this is why it's so critical that we study the Bible and to know what God has commanded, what he's expecting from us as his children. Now concerning this bullet, if it were to come down and kill a cow, God forbid hit a person, put out a window, I can't say, well, I didn't mean to. I'm still gonna be judged. I'm still responsible. If the police get a hold of me or if they're able to trace it back to me, I I was convinced in my heart if I found out in the news something happened, I would go turn myself in and say, I'm responsible. That's maturity. We cannot use ignorance as a basis of escape. We have to study the Bible so we know what God has commanded, what he's expecting. Ignorance of the law does not exempt you from it. And that's why we've got to be students of the word so we can beat sin. Sin is missing the mark. God has mercy when you're aiming for the target and you miss. There is very little mercy when you know what the target is and you're not even aiming for it. You're over here doing something you know to be totally sinful, rebellious, and gross. And you're responsible for everything you damage when you don't aim for the target. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the first command we have recorded, audibly spoken to man. And it has to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was available. There was one thing that was prohibited. He said, don't eat it. He didn't say you couldn't play in the tree. He didn't say you couldn't pluck the fruit and throw it at each other like hand grenades. He didn't say you couldn't uh, touch the tree or put a garden under the tree. He just said, don't eat of the fruit thereof. This is the first commandment God ever gave to man. To disobey it was rebellion and sin. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they disobeyed God. They missed the mark. They sinned, and it brought about this thing called destruction, calamity. Uh, Everything now is decomposing. The earth is decomposing. The earth is creaking and groaning. Earthquakes, the ring of fire, which is the perimeter of the Pacific Ocean. That's called the ring of fire geologically. It's becoming more and more active. More earthquakes, more, more volcanoes, more tremors, more tsunamis. Everything is creaking and groaning. Everything is coming to an end because of this original sin. It just takes one act of rebellion and you never know what it's going to set in motion. We as people are pretty ignorant, pretty foolish, pretty foolhardy and stupid at times. We never realize or never ponder what is the long-term ramification of this sin I'm thinking about doing. Again, God has mercy when you aim for the target and you're off a little bit. It's hard for him to have mercy when he says, aim here, and you look at him and say, no, I'm going to aim over here. It's hard for him to be merciful on that because it's willful, stubborn, and rebellion. Now, you can cry out for mercy, and if your heart's genuine, he'll give it to you, and maybe there'll be an intercessor who's trying to plead to God on your behalf, but we gotta have a fear for sin. We have to have a holy, reverential fear that sin is radioactive, and it's gonna eat us up if we're not careful. Sin brings death and separation. That's our next section. Sin brings separation from God. 
clear and simple. Even when you're born again, when you sin and rebel, there is a separation that takes place. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. But the Bible says he resists the proud. First Peter, quoting Psalm 34, says, The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Just like your children, when, when they're rebellious and stubborn and they are kicking against the pricks, you don't want to have any fellowship with them. You'll discipline them and send them to the room. Or you'll say, sit over there till you can chill out. They break fellowship. It's, their, it's totally their doing. It's not your doing. You have to resist them. When your children grow up and they become prodigals, you have to resist them. You have to put them out of the home and have no contact. Don't sneak food to the prodigal. You'll kill them. Don't enable the prodigal. You'll destroy them. If you want the prodigal to return, you've got to be like the prodigal's father. Stay faithful with what God gave you to do. The prodigal's father never chased the prodigal. If he had chased the prodigal and found him, number one, the prodigal would not have come home on his own accord. And number two, everything the prodigal's father abandoned would have wilted and perished and there'd be nothing for them to come back to. All the prosperity would have turned to nothing. All the provision, the fatted calf wouldn't be there. The servants wouldn't be there. The homestead wouldn't be there. You can't chase prodigals. The penalty for violating the commandments of God is death for the wages or paycheck of sin is death. We forget that sin still pays the same wage, which is death. Some sins have a bigger paycheck. They have a bigger hourly rate. Other sins are maybe pennies on the dollar. But make no mistake, all sin has a paycheck. And we never know when that paycheck's going to be issued. We never know when the paycheck's going to come in the mail. We never know when the paycheck's going to cash. We need to be mindful that the wages of sin is death. Certainly, Adam and Eve died they died instantly, but they did not die physically instantly. They died in their spirit man instantly. The Lord said, in the day that thou shalt eat it, thou shalt surely die. God's not a liar. Paul, echoing the same thing, said, I was alive once, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. He's not talking about a physical death because Paul is alive to write that in the Romans epistle. So what is the death he's talking about? Spiritual death. The day that Adam and Eve rebelled against their God, they died spiritually. That's why you now must be born again. Adam and Eve were living souls. God breathed into them the breath of life. But when they rebelled, they died to God spiritually. And at that point, they needed a redeemer. They did not die in their physical bodies. They died spiritually. It took them over 900 years to physically die. Consider that. They were so invigorated with life, so fellowshipped and marinated in the presence of Jehovah God that even though their sin has caused death and spiritual judgment for 6,000 years and their sin has in effect caused the domino effect that has sent billions to hell, that the power of that sin was so great Yet the life of God still coursing through their being was so strong, it took their bodies 900 years to fail and to die. They died instantly in their spirits. Because they died spiritually, they lost the glory of God and they found themselves naked. Before they were dead spiritually, they were clothed in the glory of God. And once their eyes were opened and the glory of God had departed them, they were able to look down and realize our parts are showing. And something on the inside of them made them feel guilty and dirty for that. Now consider, we know the Bible says they made for, to themselves aprons of figs. 
But who are they dressing up for? Their husband and wife, they run around naked. There's nobody to shield their nakedness from. But I believe what you see is the guilt conscience. You see them, they're guilty. They know they're guilty. They can tell they're not clothed anymore with the glory of God. And in fact, the Bible says that God had made all the, the leaves and the trees and he called it good. And so what they did was they took other things that God called good and they tried to clothe them with other things they had heard God said that is good. That's like us a lot of times. We try to clothe ourselves with things God says is good, but it's no replacement for what God says is glory. And really it is kind of a picture of either walking by faith and pleasing God out of your heart and the glory of God clothing you today or you being backslid and trying to compensate for it with good works. And so then you try to clothe your life with good works. Either way, they know they're wrong. They know they're guilty. They know something has massively changed and it's got to be covered. They lost fellowship with God. They lost their home in his garden. And things were made very difficult for them until the day they died their physical deaths. We want to make sure that this first message, this first example of sin and all of its ramifications, we want to make sure it rings true in our hearts today. Because if we start sinning now, if we start willfully sinning, willfully partaking of things God has forbidden, you have the promise of the same paycheck coming to you. You'll lose fellowship with your God. You'll lose your home or your place in his kingdom, his garden. Uh, Things will become very difficult for you until the day you physically die. I wrote a book about Samson and in it I talk about not all death is physical. Sometimes death is called divorce in a marriage. Sometimes death is called insanity and you have to go to the loony bin. Sometimes death is called physical sickness and permanent disease. Sometimes death makes your life so miserable you beg to die and then depression and suicide sets in. So let's let's consider Adam and Eve and be nothing like them in our daily walk with Jesus if we're going to rebel. Let's, let's be what they were before they sinned, which was in fellowship with the Lord, obeying him, tending, guarding, guiding, keeping that which he's given us. All right. The sin nature is our inheritance from Adam. Thanks, Adam. Couldn't you leave me like granddaddy's belt buckle or couldn't you leave me maybe your Studebaker car or maybe a good old hunting shotgun or You know, maybe grandma's uh, Barbie collection. Maybe some of you ladies collect the old-fashioned Barbies. I don't know what your family heirlooms are that you're looking forward to inheriting, but from Adam, you know what we get? Sin. Thank you, Adam. Kind of as a side note, there is a doctrine or a theological hypothesis that's worth mentioning here. Some believe Adam did not go to heaven. There are some who have studied the scriptures. Until I heard this, I'd never even considered it. And I kind of like the way it sounds. There's no reference of Adam in the hall of faith. And you think he might be there being the first man ever made. But the Bible jumps to his son, Abel. There's no reference that that Adam served God after they were kicked out of the garden. There's no reference to him uh, anywhere in the Psalms or the prophets or the law. There's no reference to him being anything great for God. And to that end, some believe that maybe when he died, he went to hell, that he did not spend eternity with God and that he may not be in heaven when we get there. It's worth noting. It didn't have to be that way if that's how it is. He could have believed on God and ended up in the hall of faith like his son Abel did. But for whatever reason, we don't see anything after the garden 
spoken of Adam in the positive, like he redeemed himself or he walked with God like Enoch did or built a boat like Noah did. He, he just, he disappears, as does Eve. Through Adam's transgression, sin entered mankind. Every child born into the earth has a sinful nature, and because of this sin nature, death is inevitable. Because of the sin nature, and Proverbs says foolishness is in the heart of a child, children will grow up, and at some point that theologically is called the age of accountability, children choose to willfully rebel. They choose to willfully sin against mom and dad. That's the authority in their house. Supposed to be anyway. Sometimes they're orphans. Sometimes they're in foster care. We'll just take normal God-intended family. Children about the age of three, four, five, seven, eight, they rebel and they commit their first willful known act of rebellion like Adam and Eve did. And at that point, our doctrine says they die spiritually. Now, I like to mention my daughter, Abigail, she got born again when she was three, which some people would think maybe that's unreasonable. How can you know? Well, when you're spiritual and you walk with God, you know. And Abigail is a different child than my other children. And she is, I tactfully say, she was a stinker. And even at two and a half and three, she had this little subtle stinker attitude. And I would often tell mom, I said, this one just doesn't like me as much as her sister does. And my wife would say, well, she's just two. Spend more time with her. But there was just this kind of stinker attitude. But we, we've done this with our kids. We begin to talk with them when they get old enough about the things of God. Honestly, we never stop or start talking with them about God. It's just always God. So we begin to talk about being born again and having Jesus come and live in your heart and being saved and, and receiving Jesus and, and talking to them about Jesus. And we do this at night when, they're, when we're praying with them and laying down in bed with them. And Absy began to ask about salvation. And I want Jesus in my heart. She began to ask questions, which let you know faith was coming by the hearing of mom and dad talk about salvation. And one night, my wife said, I think I was out of town. My wife said, I could just tell she was ready. She'd been asking questions for several days, several weeks, maybe. She was just ready. And I, I believe it went something to the effect of, mommy, I, I, want, to, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. This is a three-year-old. And so she did. Mom prayed with her and she gave her life to Jesus. And I can testify as her father, the kid was noticeably different. We're talking about a night and day change in a three-year-old. She went from being a stinker to being joyful, to being happy, to being playful. Something changed in her. She was born again. Now, I don't know what to say. Did she rebel? She was a pretty big stinker at two and a half and three. And she had a strong little will, stronger than her older sisters. But that was being born again. At some point, she died because there was a noticeable change in her countenance, in her soul, in her personality after she got born again. Amen. Every child born into the earth has a sinful nature and, and because of this sin nature, they will die eventually. Romans 5.15 says, For if through offense the, uh, of one many be dead, yeah, many's in the billions. Romans 7.17, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. These are references from Romans talking about that sin nature that's in every one of us. God knew Adam would fail through sin, causing death to enter the world. And in order to redeem man from sin, God prepared a savior 
so he could once again have fellowship with man and be with him for eternity. So God is God. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's omniscient, omnipresent. These are just big fancy words for saying he's God. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's everywhere at all times and all places. So in his omniscience, his ever knowledge, his eternal knowledge, he knew that Adam and Eve would sin and he had already prepared his son to be the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And so that game plan was already in place before Adam even took his first step of rebellion. Genesis 3.15, the Lord prophesied and said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head. Her seed, that's prophesying of Jesus. Jesus shall bruise your head, Satan, you serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So Jesus destroyed or crushed Satan, though Satan killed him on the cross. We see that a heel got crushed or bruised, but yet that heel is the same thing that destroyed Satan's power. Amen. This is the first prophecy in the Bible speaking of the coming redeemer sent to crush the head of the serpent. Thank God we've been redeemed and the Lord Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. So let's look at this next section here. Man's redemption must be spirit-based. We died spiritually, therefore we must be redeemed spiritually. Man died spiritually, therefore we must be redeemed spiritually. Because man is a spirit and because man dies spiritually when he sins the first time, Man must be redeemed spiritually. What that means is the blood of bulls and goats will not redeem us. Good works, feeding the hungry, social activism, uh, social media hashtag slacktivism, giving all your money to the poor, being nice to your neighbor, taking care of widows, that is not enough to save you. Your redemption must be spiritual. And man must receive Uh, salvation inwardly not merely a change in the flesh the only way this flesh can be redeemed is to die and then be given a glorified body Jesus said the flesh profits nothing that would include trying to save yourself through good works Uh, in my own life I've done this I know you've done this because you're human too there's been times when we sin and in order to show God how sorry we are we try to compensate for it by lots of good works and we do what we know to do even better than before, trying to outrun or out-redeem or outpace the sinfulness for which we feel guilty. That's a works mentality. Now, you should maintain good works, and you should do it with all of your might. But when you sin, all you can do is say, Lord, forgive me. I have sinned. I have rebelled against your word. Wash me, cleanse me, restore me, and receive me again. That's all you can do. And now, Lord, that you've redeemed me and cleansed me and washed me, I'm going to go back to serving you again with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that makes us alive, and a dead spirit must be born again. A dead spirit must be born again. This is the salvation of God, to be born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible word of God. So when we got born again, we got born again, because we heard the incorruptible seed of God's word preached to us and it brought a faith and the Holy Spirit convicted us by that word going forth and at some point we humbled ourselves and said, Lord, I need a savior. Lord, I need redemption. Lord, I'm miserable. Lord, save me. And it was a supernatural process. 
There was no amount of good works we could do to come down to the altar to be born again. Uh, we, we answered the altar call. We answered the call to prayer. We prayed with somebody in private. But there was no works we did in that moment to be born again. It was a total inward spiritual transformation. Outwardly, good works can never revive nor give life to a dead spirit. The world is doing everything they can to be a good steward. And we have this new kind of goofiness called creation stewardship, which is really uh, environmentalism wrapped up in church lingo. Uh, we have all this slacktivism and social do-goodism and uh, equality and who knows all the next good stuff people are going to try to do, but it won't redeem anybody. And honestly, all this hashtag new movement of social justice the Bible says, be good one to another. The Bible says, stand up for justice and equity. The Bible says, love covers sin. The people would just be a Christian. All this other stuff wouldn't need fixing. We're just focused on the word. Only the spirit who raised Christ from the dead can raise a dead spirit to life again. Romans 8, 11 says, and if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he shall quicken your mortal flesh by the same spirit of God. So let's look at what it takes to die spiritually. It only takes one sin. It only takes one sin to die spiritually and go to hell. A lot of folks say, well, I, I, I don't think I'm going to go to hell. Uh, why? Well, I've done good stuff, I've done good works, and I think I've done more good than I have evil. Well, that's, that's nice. At least the equation's a little unbalanced in the direction of good. But you have to recognize that you can't merit salvation and it doesn't take more sins than more good works to send you to hell it just takes one sin to send you to hell rebellion and usually you're condemned to hell in your childhood that doesn't sound very child friendly but it's pretty biblical paul said in romans 7 9 i was alive without the law once paul went on to also say for without the law there's no knowledge of sin. Without the law, there's no imputation of sin. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Sin revived. Didn't say a whole lifestyle of sin, just sin, just sin, this thing called sin. Not sins, plural, just sin, just rebellion, just attitude. It just takes one thing to kill your spirit, man. Now you must be born again. It isn't like you commit your first sin and, and you're, you're cutting off your toes and you commit a little bit more sin and then you cut off your feet at the knees or your leg at the knees and then you commit a little bit more sin and then they amputate you at the hips and then you commit a little bit more sin. It's not a slow death. It's an instantaneous death. Just like the Lord told Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. In the day, in that moment, you shall surely die. I think a lot of Christians, or I shouldn't say Christians, pagans believe, well, I'm not completely dead to God. I haven't like committed adultery and I haven't like committed murder. Well, then what about lie? What about slander? What about worship of God other than God? I think you're guilty of all those. Jesus became sin for us that we might be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he that made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For he hath made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Now, one translation takes it and says, for he's made him to be the sin offering for us. I like the translation or the interpretation, Jesus became sin. Why else would he say on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He took upon him the sins. He took upon him the sins of mankind. That's the only way he could die. It's the only way he could begin to bleed. It's the only way his biology could begin to break down. He took upon him sin and, and for us became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's an exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. He took our sin and then imputed unto us righteousness. He took our sin, no longer imputing or accounting or holding our sin against us. And in taking our sin, as many as would believe on it, he imputed or gave unmerited freely. He gave us his righteousness. So now when God looks at us spiritually, he sees righteousness, not a dead spirit being. And now we see salvation is only a call away. And this is the powerful thing about salvation and what religions don't get. Whereas other religions believe in myriads of works to reach nirvana or to be reincarnated, to, to reincarnate up, upward mobility from a blowfly to a cicada, to a bullfrog, to a, to a, I don't know, a parakeet, to a chicken, to maybe ultimately a cow, and then maybe reincarnated into nirvana or, or however Hinduism in its hierarchy works. That's exhausting. And then, then there's all the other works of trying to do right and atone for your own sins and self-flagellate and uh, sacrificing this. And I don't know, it's exhausting. But salvation, according to the gospel, is only one humble call away. Romans 10, 9 says that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now that doesn't mean just saying Jesus. That means, according to this word, I think it's curios, the word Lord there. That means you call him master. That means, it doesn't just say confess with your mouth Jesus. It says, confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus. Now, this is totally lost on us in the West today. Lord means supreme one. Lord means master, he which owns people. Lord means the, the supreme one, the emperor that has in his power to dispose and order and command at his whim and will. We're not just saying, oh, Jesus, and we're saved. We're saying, be my master. I come and I submit to you. And whatever you command me to do this day forward, I will do. It's, it's kind of loosely in American history, like the indentured servitude that many Europeans took upon themselves to be able to escape the poverty and privation of Europe and come over here and work. They were indentured. They willingly submitted themselves unto a master, a lord, a, a slave master, and they worked for them. Except here, we're not indentured to be free uh, we obtain freedom by going into slavery or bondage to Jesus Christ. I don't use the example of the slave trade out of West Africa because those people were not free. Those people were sold by fellow Africans who were tri intertribal in their warfare. You know, intertribal warfare in West Africa and honestly, even during the days of Livingstone in Central and East and South Central Africa, that slave trade uh, was also intertribal tribes fighting among tribes would defeat their neighbor tribe 
and then sell them to the whites and to the slave trade. Livingstone fought against this, as did many other European Christians. And there's the one, Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is one of the greatest names in abolishing the slave trade in England and Europe. We don't use that picture because they had no say in it. They did not come and willfully submit. They were sold by fellow Africans to white, Portuguese, British, French, German slave traders, and even uh, Muslims out of Zanzibar on the East African coast, out of, uh, off the coast of Tanzania, Kenya, Tanzania. Muslims have been wonderful, I say sarcastically, in the slave trade for a thousand years. But there's still this word that Jesus is Lord. He is master. He owns us. So I think we've cheapened salvation for some. We've taught people, call upon the name of Jesus and thou shalt be saved. Uh, It says, with your mouth, call him master. Fall down at his feet and commit your life to him. And what takes place in that relationship that we don't understand as Westerners because we're so democratic and have our opinions in our Twitter accounts is we fall down at their feet and say, Take care of me and I will be yours to command. Provide for me and I will plow your fields. Defend me and my family and I will give you every ounce of my life. That's what it means to be in a master-servant relationship in the New Testament. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now the picture is, again, Uh, Well, I recently preached this story, but it's worth recording. In the first century of the Roman Empire, first century AD, one of the evil emperors was Nero. Nero was a very wicked emperor out of Rome, persecuted and crucified and burned alive many, 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 many Christians trying to stomp out Christianity. So he's a bad guy. He's not somebody we want to model anything after, but there's this famous story in history where one of the other kingdoms was under assault and under a lot of strain and duress. And the king of that kingdom traveled to Rome. His kingdom's under attack. His food supplies are running low. He's got enemies surrounding him. Everything is falling apart. He cannot defend his own people. He cannot save his own family. But there is one that is greater than him, and that is the emperor. We would say Lord Nero because it's the same word in the Greek, emperor, Lord, Nero. He travels to Rome and he falls down at the feet of Nero. This is a king now, falling down at the feet of another king and says, "Uh, Emperor Nero, if you would receive me, I want to make you my master and I want to submit all that I have to you. And he falls down before Nero and Nero stands up and he lifts him up and he says, you have done wisely in making yourself my servant. For now in making yourself my servant, all that I have is yours and I will defend you. That's exactly the pattern we see in this famous passage. If you will fall down and call upon the Lord Jesus and make him your master, and then we add this critical condition and believe that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What did Nero do for this little king? Saved him delivered him, protected him. Now that's all in the natural, but we're talking about in the spirit realm here. 
When we are born again, it is not some cheap prayer at the altar. It's never meant to be a cheap prayer. Sometimes we make it cheap. What we're teaching the people to do is they are coming and surrendering all that they have to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they are making him God and king. And he says, rise, I'll defend you. I will save you. I will protect you. I will fight for you. Amen. Salvation has already been paid for, but it is obtained by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Not just the name of Jesus. If it was just the name of Jesus, then as I I often kind of talk about in the Latino cultures, they name their kids Jesus, which is Spanish for Jesus. It's a very common name among the Latino communities and populations, Latin America. Well, if it's just about saying the name of Jesus, then every time uh, Mama Rosa or Mama Sita calls her son Jesus, she's getting saved again and again. It's not that. It's not the name just by itself. It's the lordship. It's the honoring and recognizing and calling upon that name. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Until Jesus came, we were under the law of Moses. This law came with a curse. If you didn't obey the law, curses came upon you for being wicked. But Jesus redeemed us from this curse. So I want you to understand part of our salvation is being redeemed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham wants to come upon us through the new birth. wants to come upon us through our faith in Jesus Christ that we might receive this promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. The threefold curse of the law is this. Spiritual death, which we've been redeemed of or from. Sickness and disease and poverty or lack. What that means is when we get born again, he redeems us from hell. He redeems us from sickness and disease and he begins to be our divine provision. I don't like the term prosperity anymore. It has such a nasty blah to it. But I like the term provision, divine provision, because every father has provision for his children. Jesus' death upon the tree, the cross, redeemed us from eternal death and separation from God. It redeemed us from all the works of the enemy, which according to Acts 10.38 is sickness and disease, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Apparently everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. That's part of our redemption. And the Lord redeemed us from poverty and lack. And with our salvation, we have the promise of a divine provision. He said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. He told us to be content with such things as we have. And he said, my God shall supply your needs. That's provision. This is our redemption. This is what happens when we fall on our knees and we don't make Jesus simply savior, but we make him master and Lord. Amen. We have other scriptures there. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me, bless his holy name, forget not his benefits, who forgiveth all my iniquities, who healeth all my diseases, who renews my strength like the eagle, who redeems my life from destruction. Amen. First Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins by whose stripes we were healed. Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And Psalm 35, 27, I have no idea what that verse says. You'll have to look that one up on your own. Amen. I trust you've gotten something out of this and you've been encouraged. If nothing else, as a Christian listening to this, 
See what areas of your life you can submit to the master, to the lordship of our Jesus, our savior. Jesus refers to himself as friend only three times in the New Testament. One is in reference to Abraham. One is in reference to Judas. The other is in reference to the apostles at the Lord's Supper. He's referred to as savior 24 times in the New Testament, but he's referred to as master or emperor or Lord 600, almost 670 times in the New Testament. Jesus wants us to make him Lord and you cannot do that without submission. That is part of our redemption. Amen. Father, I thank you for Christianity 101 and pod school and these lessons. Bless all those that listen to this in the future or watch it on video. Bless those that download it or stream it. May they be enriched and challenged to have a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.